Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to the Times Talk on Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald. Today, we continue our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to you, our radio audience. The Times Talk is a weekly current events and ideas symposium that takes place at noon on Wednesdays. Our topic of conversation for this time's talk is the riots in the United States Capitol. I'm joined today by Georgia College criminal justice professor Sarah Buckdown and Georgia College sociology professor Stephanie McClure. I want to thank you all for joining me today on this time's talk edition of Georgia College Connections. Thank you, Daniel. It's my pleasure to host. Uh, so today we're talking about the attack on the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. that took place a few weeks ago on January 6th. One of the things that strikes me about this event is that it's called uh, many different things throughout the media landscape and in our conversations about it. I wanted to start our conversation off by asking y'all, uh, what do you call what happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th? This is Stephanie. That's a good question, Daniel. I think I would do similar to kind of what you've done. I think the, the terminology that I've been using has been evolving as we get additional information, right? So I think my kind of earliest preference was to use the word riot. I think that's where I defaulted to. That's what it felt like. But as we sort of watched some of the investigation and the information and the arrests unfold subsequent to January 6th, attack does seem more appropriate given the evidence for significant pre-planning and coordination among some of the different groups that were there and that were participating that happened online and potentially with some actual members of Congress, right, being involved in that coordination. So I think it does matter what we call it. I don't feel like it's fixed. And coming to understand exactly what happened, you know, what happened before, what happened that day, and what the consequences are going to be is going to shape the terminology that we use. Hey, this is Sarah. I just go with insurrection. And maybe that is bold, but, I mean, that's the rise up against the government. And I feel like that rise up against the government is also perpetrated by people within the government. Like Stephanie said, there are people there, actual people who work in law, who work at the Capitol. Um, I know there were some state representatives there from Tennessee, from other states who have been demoted from their committee leaderships. But, I mean, I flat out see it as an insurrection, rise up against the government. And I felt like they felt like it was righteous. And I think that's a large part of where our political parties have gone is the righteous uprising of through government trying to stall it and blow it up, our actual government. And this is part of that. Getting into office just to make it break. <laughs> that's what I felt like part of that also is of uh, this riot 
slash Malie. Malie, I think, is too weak. Um, but I feel like I really try to be careful on words, and I'm probably a person who will take the stronger word over the weaker word, and I feel like insurrection is what I would actually call it. And why does it matter what we call it? Well, I mean, I think to Sarah's point, right, about what were the motives and the goals of the groups involved, and then what are the potential consequences? I think that's why it matters. We've had in the history of Times Talk, I think almost every year we have at least one discussion on the nature of the First Amendment and free speech, right, and what the rights are of individuals and what the consequences are when the government violates someone's free speech rights, the right to gather, the right to protest, the right to make your opinion heard. These are sacred rights in the United States. And I think Sarah can probably speak to this with more expertise than I can. There are also violations of the law, certainly related to incitement, particular kinds of speech which are not allowed, the incitement of violence, and then also specifically treasonous acts related to insurrection. Any of us who are public employees have to sign a pledge that we won't participate in groups or organization or attempts to overthrow the government. You know, we kind of joke about it because most of us don't imagine ever participating in something like that. But that is a pledge that I signed when I started working for Georgia College in 2005. And it's a imposition on my sort of political action that I accept as a consequence of the responsibility and the privilege of being a public employee. And I would like for my elected officials to be held accountable for that. So I think it has to do with clarity on the intentions, the acknowledging of what happened, and then what are the consequences, the sort of outcome. So I think that's why it matters. We may not ever still come to agreement on what we're going to call it, but I think that's why we're talking about it. You're listening to a Times Talk edition of Georgia College Connections. On this episode, we're previewing the upcoming Times Talk that will examine the Capitol riots and what they can tell us about these United States. I'm joined today by Georgia College criminal justice professor Sarah Buckdown and Georgia College sociology professor Stephanie McClure. They will co-facilitate the Times Talk conversation, which will take place at noon tomorrow via video conference. You can see a list of articles about this topic and find out how to join the Times Talk on WRGC's Facebook page. Stay tuned because we'll be right back with more of the Times Talk on Georgia College Connections after a short break. And I want to go back to something that you had mentioned, Sarah. You were talking about this, I guess, movement with the either 
implicit or explicit goal of undermining government. Uh, and I think that, um, Stephanie, you brought this in, uh, whereas we here in this conversation, we are all state government employees. And one of the things that we sign uh, basically an oath that we are not going to engage in anything to undermine the government. Uh, of course, as we are just getting past um, the inauguration of the 46th president, uh, Joe Biden, you know, one part of that transfer of power is the uh, taking of oaths. Uh, our you know, state legislature just came into office uh, for its 2021 session a few weeks ago. Uh, they take those oaths. Um, do those oaths either administered and freely taken and in the context of our conversation, um, willingly broken have any meaning for where we find ourselves in America right now? Well, I think those oaths are a promise of good faith, that you're going to do your job in good faith, or you're going to do whatever office you're in in good faith. As we have seen in this past election, we elected the QAnon woman. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Who gets up on the House floor and is talking while she has a mask across her face that says she's being silent. Censored. Yes, censored. <laughs> like, that is the height of stupidity, right? She did not go there in good faith if that was her plan. And one of the things about the government that I love is the hope that everyone can work in good faith so it helps everyone. And I feel like that has been the intent of the past couple of, well, decades of my life. Get into an office so you can just destroy it, the government. Like, that's the point. But then also I want to fuss about how the government doesn't do anything as a voter. And I feel like the people who did what I call insurrection, <laughs> the riot on the Capitol, those are the people who are disenchanted with government, but also want it for specific circumstances, right? And they're so blazing about it and feel okay about what they're doing that they they take a ton of selfies and put them on Facebook. Nothing that they did was wrong. So they had nothing to feel guilt about, right, or shame. Whereas, I mean, maybe my childhood was different, but I was taught that the government wasn't bad. <laughs> the government was there to help people, and you have to make it help you. And it's there to help anyone. Now, I know now that's not true, but we can always make it better. But the people that rioted are the very people who want the government to burn down, but also want it to help them. So it's, I think intention is a big part of it. Well, and there's that sense of entitlement that many of the people who participated in this insurrection at the Capitol felt that they were 
adhering to their patriotic duty uh, to be there. It's not even the sense that they um, felt that there was anything to be ashamed of or that they were doing anything wrong, but yet that they were compelled uh, by their fealty to this form of government that we engage in uh, to undertake those actions. Right, and that's why there's no shame. Mm. And I guess um, this calls for a question of, like, how did we get to that point? Are there any uh, precedents that have led us to these actions in the United States Capitol? In terms of having that belief and being so firm in it, honestly, that goes back for me uh, to the history of broadcasting and communications law, right, and the removal of the Fairness Doctrine. I think it was in 1987 of truth in broadcasting and the kind of bright line that we had in place in the past between editorial and opinion content and news. Um, there was some accountability for broadcasters in terms of, you know, being able to verify the factual content of what they say. I would definitely say it's also a question of intent, a good faith versus bad faith, where there are massive amounts of bad faith actors who profit off of cultivating fear with no accountability for facts, for the information that they're presenting being verifiable and for confirming the veracity of the data that they're sharing. You know, example after example after example after example of lawsuits that have been filed for, the, for false information being communicated that then get settled out of court and there's no substantive change. So the historical precedent for that feeling of being sure that you're righteous and right. In this case, it comes from being convinced that there was massive amounts of voter fraud that explained why President Trump lost. And we certainly have lots of proof in the investigations of Russian interference that there was definitely some jadiness going on, right? But then we had 60 plus cases that went before the court before judges who have access to a whole lot more data and information than any of us do, right, who did not um, support those accusations, right? And some of them were laughably unsupported related to that. And so the historical context for that sense of righteousness comes to me from, um, I'm from Missouri originally, and so for me it's, it's Rush Limbaugh, right? For other people it might be Alex Jones, but Rush Limbaugh really represents what I can identify in my own family and my state, sort of political discursive history, just the emergence of an absolutely toxic voice who has little to no concern about truth and certainly is not a good faith actor and um, has created massive toxicity in my own community. So that to me is the historical precedent for that, that feeling is this absolute conviction that you are right about voter fraud and therefore need to defend the integrity of this election up to and including attacking the Capitol, which that's its own, that's a whole other conversation, right, that you would include that as a legitimate strategy, but it really does have to do with people being able to lie with impunity with no consequences.
You're listening to a Times Talk edition of Georgia College Connections. On this episode, we're previewing the upcoming Times Talk that will examine the Capitol riots and what they can tell us about these United States. I'm joined today by Georgia College criminal justice professor Sarah Buck Dowd and Georgia College sociology professor Stephanie McClure. They will co-facilitate the Times Talk conversation, which will take place at noon tomorrow via video conference. You can see a list of articles about this topic and find out how to join the Times Talk on WRGC's Facebook page. Stay tuned because we'll be right back with more of the Times Talk on Georgia College Connections after a short break. Well, and I think that the election, uh, perhaps, shall we say, the election loss um, of Donald Trump, uh, it may be a, a flashpoint for it. Uh, but would you say that that's the same as a, a tipping point? Um, and, and I want to go to this idea that there were many groups that were there at that attack on the Capitol. And those groups have been long standing with these kinds of beliefs that uh, the government was corrupt and uh, people had to organize to defend themselves uh, from a corrupt government. Um, I, of course, uh, to harken back to our earlier conversation, I think of uh, these groups like the Oath Keepers. Uh, many times comprised of former uh, military or law enforcement officials, the uh, three percenters, uh, those who believe that, uh, again, um, they are communing with a a generational uh, trust of uh, American patriots who are fighting these corrupt governments. These groups did not uh, spring up uh, during the course of the 2020 election season, uh, a election, um, uh, quote unquote, stolen, uh, foretold for months prior to the actual vote. Uh, they had been you know, uh, working, organizing in, in training uh, for years that, uh, that I would say uh, precede even the Trump administration, the 2016 election, um, this uh, uh, real uh, overflowing of the toxicity uh, that you describe. Yeah, this is a long thread, and that's the part, you know, I was talking earlier about the work that I did in D.C. with the Partnership Against Hate Project. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, when you discover that there are groups that exist in your community that have tattoos of Rahoa, which means racial holy war, that, that that's what they're advocating for, that is pretty intense. That's where I learned that the number 88 is a hate symbol for the two of the eighth letter of the alphabet and the number 311 or three of the 11th letter of the alphabet. But any student of the history of race and white supremacy in the United States knows that these organizations have a very long history. And every moment that we can identify where the experiment of America was expanded to include more of her citizens than it had in the past is associated with a resurgence 
of these kinds of organizations, whether it's the Ku Klux Klan, the White Citizens Council, you know, taking America back from who, right? Who are you arguing that it belongs to? But the thread is a very long one. It's a very violent one. There are lots of bodies in that past. And I would argue that the contemporary period of this sort of perceived illegitimacy of government that Tara was talking about earlier is really uh, connected with the end of Jim Crow segregation, right? In 1953, 13 of the Deep South states signed the Southern Manifesto that said they would resist with all of their efforts any attempts by the federal government to require the integration of public services, right? The full participation of all of the citizens of the United States in all of her institutions, they were going to massively resist those things. So we've seen that's a decline in public services, it's a decline in trust in government, it's an um, increase in privatization, you know, sort of market-based solutions. We want less government because we don't want government that involves them. All of that is uh, connected to the history of race and white supremacy in the United States, and we're lying to ourselves if we don't say it out loud. I think Stephanie is exactly right. And all those groups are terrorists. We just do not call them domestic terrorists because the very people who could label them are the people doing that. So you I never label your group a bad. Yeah, Sarah, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Sarah. I think it was 2001 when I was working on that, but I feel like the FBI report about the infiltration of law enforcement by white supremacist organizations as a concrete, specific, and articulated strategy, I feel like that report already existed. I don't know if Sarah can correct me on that if I have the year wrong, but I feel like that's true. I don't. I know what you're talking about, but I don't know what year or anything. Yeah. But I mean, your participation within the KKK, law enforcement and military and those type of things, it's so counterintuitive. I don't know what to say anymore. You know, it feels like believing in any government. We aren't even going to get into federal versus state. Uh, is seen as stupid. But in this instance, with the Trump administration, the federal government ruled in the eyes of these militiamen, which is totally against what Southern groups tend to believe. But there is a lot of overlap with all of those ideas, the exclusionary aspect of it, you know, the Y2K, let's build our own shelters and fill it with macaroni and cheese or toilet paper or whatever. We always have had those groups, it feels like. It's just we've always discounted them as crazy. And now this time our federal government didn't acknowledge that this was coming down the pipeline because of the disarray in the government due to the creation of distrust and people getting in office with bad intentions or bad faith. Um, Just last week, Joe Biden, in his inauguration address, called out white supremacy in the threat that uh, white supremacist organizations pose to the United States of America. 
because of this attack on the Capitol, uh, do we have any sense that this threat is being elevated to the importance that is necessary to preserve the country in its government or to fight these extremely toxic ideologies and organizations uh, within our society? Hmm. I think I would say, you know, in my network, certainly people were surprised to hear Biden use the term white supremacy in his inaugural address. Most people feel like, you know, I haven't confirmed this myself with a content analysis of prior inauguration addresses, but most people agreed that it was probably the first time that that phrase was used. I think the, the trouble for me is that there are so many people who have internalized an ideology of white supremacy that doesn't sort of rise to the level of racial holy war, um, but that shows up and manifests in um, everyday decisions and choices and beliefs and perceptions of um, legitimacy, who is a legitimate leader, who's a legitimate candidate, who is someone who is by default deserving of their respect, and who by default is deserving of participation in public decision making. I think I, I want to say that the fact that he used the term in his inaugural address means that the threat is finally recognized for what it is, but I can't say that I'm optimistic about that. I just think the temperature got turned up, you know, to 11 maybe, and it'll get turned down to 8, but it won't go away. I just don't have any evidence, historical evidence, that suggests that that's true. I'd like to be wrong, though. I'll say that out loud. And when you say the temperature got turned up, is that on behalf of those authorities that would try to uh, face this threat down or the threat posed by these organizations and ideology that are seeking this fight? I would say both. I mean, if you look at what happened on January 6th and what was threatened in the lead up to January 20th, the fact that there was some accountability for the individuals who participated in trespassing on the Capitol property, right, and that that was made public, I think that that took a lot of folks who maybe would have participated otherwise by surprise and changed their behavior, which is gratifying, obviously. And I also think there were a lot of folks nationwide who maybe were sympathetic with what we've articulated already today as what they believe to be the sort of righteous motivation of the participants, but we're not sympathetic with the strategy. And so maybe they're more aware of the threat of that ideology and hopefully engaging in some pretty serious critical self-reflection. I hope that that's true, right? But I don't, even where it's like we have these inflection points, right, these moments of, hey, this thing is deadly and potentially costly to all of us. We ought to think differently about it. It's like we have short attention spans, right? We can only think about it for a moment and then we move on to something else and then we don't ever actually address it seriously. So I would say, to answer your question, the heat was sort of turned up for both. I just don't know how long it will last. Because like you said earlier, they've been around forever. They didn't come into existence in 2016.
Right, and also they've been monitored different by different administrations. There was a huge, you know, section of the federal government that investigated civil rights violations and hate crimes and all those things during Obama because there were so many instances of that. The day President Trump came, I looked at that website and it was pretty much gone, right? And budgets are sets of priorities, right? Government budgets are are priority lists, basically. So it sort of depends on who in good faith wants to even address this issue that's been a thread in America for so long, right? And I think it is specifically different for Southern white people also. You know, I was told... Well, they're just ignorant or whatever, you know, <laughs> like um, they're just stupid, whoever's racist, you know, but it was never to hold that person accountable for any of their words or anything. Like that was me being a rude little girl if I said something. So I think as a community, there's definitely a lot of people out here with good faith and want those things, but are probably living in a household with people who have really bad faith. And I think that's where we're kind of stuck, you know. Um, I think in the South, it's very different. When I was teaching on Zoom and I had a student who had all these flags and stuff around where he was zooming from and I know what they mean and he knows what they mean I don't know if he was at his house or his mom's house or his dad's house or whatever but I saw that I can't unsee that I still have to teach race and crime and white privilege and all of those things the very same way if not more passionately had I not seen those. And that's the hard part. That That's the part that makes me sad, because if I do that wrong, I could have another person just mad at educated white women, and then now they're in the Proud Boys. I know it doesn't go that far that quick, but I've thought about that, you know? One of the things that I have been pondering, maybe perhaps over the last 12 years, is that uh, during my upbringing, there was a a social cost to be had for espousing uh, racist viewpoints in public. And what I had thought was that over the long arc of time, that social stigmatization of outright racism would lead a younger generation to uh, not follow that same path because they would no longer hear the explicit racism as they would have in a prior generation. What we have seen, I think, in the last 12 years is that there is 
a very concerted reaction um, to bring back that uh, outwardly uh, racist thought and sentiment and to then even you know, go further and in, in, uh, take an affront against those who would try to push back on racist sentiment in, in public. Uh, do you all have any sense of, of where we are right now in this push and pull between a, a sense of, of wanting to, shall we say, put racism in its place uh, and then the counter reaction to that? We call that era, what you're talking about, you know, that you and I and Sarah were raised in, we call that the color line era. So the post-civil rights movement, right, where Reagan basically co-opts um, King's quote about, I judge people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, right? I don't see race, some of my best friends are, right? That whole thing, you're, shh, you're not supposed to talk about it. If we pretend like we don't see race, racism will go away. That was never accurate, right? It was this sort of perpetuation of systems and structures of racism while we tried to pretend like we didn't see them. It didn't make them go away because it didn't dismantle the structures that put them into place, right? And then what I can tell you from, you know, 20 years of teaching this is that my white students who were raised in families where it was like, shh, don't say this, we're not racist, we don't judge people by the color of their skin, they also heard, for example, you can't go spend the night at that friend's house or your grandmother would roll over in her grave if you take that black boy to prom. So these students heard the sort of colorblind rhetoric of their parents, and then they also saw their actions, which were not colorblind. So that creates some cognitive dissonance that they had to reckon with, and students respond to that very differently. I would say, you know, some were like, okay, this is what we say, but this is what we actually believe, right? And we're continued to be sort of socialized into that um, perpetuation of racist ideology. They understood you just keep it quiet, right? Um, and then there were others who were like, I'm confused. You say one thing and do something else. Maybe we should do different. Um, and I think then we're seeing the manifestation of that. I will say, and this I kind of speak out of turn here a little bit, but we are seeing this across the globe. Apia uses the phrase, the spoony wave of white nationalism, which has swept across Europe. Um, it is happening in other places besides just here, this sort of reemergence of um, what we might call over white supremacist ideology. And uh, wow. you're not going to make me feel ashamed or embarrassed for being white, right? And it's like, that's not what anyone's actually trying to do. It's not the um, presence of your whiteness. It's your investment in it and the meaning that you attach to it that we're trying to create. But so it's not just in the United States. And I can't necessarily speak with any expertise about why that is so. So I would just affirm that what you saw was real. That is what has happened. And I do think looking back, we will sort of trace the end of the colorblind era to 2016. But I think it started ending with Obama's election. I agree. And the Tom's talks that me and Stephanie have done over the past couple of years, some of the, we have had the threat against us for, I guess, doing the Times Talk or talking about it, I'm not sure, or having an opinion. It was just a threat. It's um, a threat, uh, like an administrative threat or a threat that, like, you know, we hear tendered through email probably, or... It was, it was through email and it was from probably a student. Mm, um, like an anonymous threat. 
Yeah. I don't remember what event that was, but that has happened to us. And I feel like that's part for the course, you know, is just you have to keep on doing it. And if you really believe in it, I mean, I shouldn't have to fear for my safety, but also at the same time, I don't want other people to fear for their safety just due to the color of their skin. I do think I agree with the end of color blindness, and now we're in this area where nobody is like, well, what do we do? You know, like, I want to do the right thing, but I can't explain what the right thing is. Numerous people called me over uh, the summer asking me to explain all the protests, right? What are we mad about? This, this, and this, right? And the same with the Women's March. That was four years ago. I remember being in groups of Milledgeville, and they're like, what are you protesting? And I'm like, I'm not really protesting. I'm advocating. Just not understanding at all that there is a different lived experience than what they had had. Like, me truly having to explain what it is like to move about the world as a woman and the fears you have to another woman. And I felt like that was because socialization had caused her to not see this at all, even if it impacted her. Same with race. That same woman explained to me why everybody's pissed off about the George Floyd thing, you know? What is it that when you have white people getting into it and advocating for others that aren't their same color, it really confuses white people. And I think me and Stephanie have both faced that through our careers in very, very different ways. Some humorous and some not so humorous, some including you know, threats of violence against us. You're listening to a Times Talk edition of Georgia College Connections. On this episode, we're previewing the upcoming Times Talk that will examine the Capitol riots and what they can tell us about these United States. I'm joined today by Georgia College criminal justice professor Sarah Buckdown and Georgia College sociology professor Stephanie McClure. They will co-facilitate the Times Talk conversation, which will take place at noon tomorrow via video conference. You can see a list of articles about this topic and find out how to join the Times Talk on WRGC's Facebook page. Stay tuned because we'll be right back with more of the Times Talk on Georgia College Connections after a short break. I 
don't want to think that we are at you know some kind of you know historical turning point. Um, there are enough uh, markers in here that we will be all looking at this point in time and you know looking at it for which way that it, it goes uh, from here. Uh, but I want to ask y'all, what are y'all going to be looking at and monitoring and questioning in these days, weeks, and months ahead? One of the things that I've been really trying to convey to my students is a lot of this is an inside job in the sense that you got to want to know this history. And once you know it, you have a responsibility to do different. And, and to me, that's an inside job. And that whole inside job gets taken out to your actual career. And I feel like that's a big part of how you, uh, how you change the world is how you treat people through your job, how you change structures. I think um, you can change structures that way. I know for me, myself, working on myself has paid dividends out in the way my students react to me and how they are out in the world. I try to teach them there's value to being compassionate and genuine. And being a genuine, honest person will help you get far, you know. And some of the things that I've been praying for are pray for the souls that are filled with hate and the anger and how can we as a community deal with that. I'm not talking about a blank slate, blank check, go do whatever you want. I'm saying, how can we get people to to realize that that action was wrong, first of all, and then take acceptance, right, and then move into how can I do different? And it feels like just in the since, you know, past 15 years, taking acceptance of your own bad behaviors becomes abnormal, <laughs> right? Like, if you're seen as a failure or something if you admit you've done something wrong. And that's the thing that's been so perplexing to me. To When you take responsibility for your own behavior and deal with the consequences, I see that as courageous and being brave and all those things. Right now it feels like there are no consequences for any of the things that happened at the Capitol, <laughs> um, just there's no consequences for not wearing masks. It just feels very individualistic right now. And that makes me sad because I feel like we could get a lot more done and do great, great inclusive and loving things for one another if we thought big picture more than I'll get mine keep mine um sorry if that sounded hokey but that's something i really do try to focus on oh no uh, i only have one it, reaction to that and that's amen <laughs> <laughs> it sounds individualistic to improve yourself to improve society but it's really not um 
But, I mean, that's what I would hope for. And my biggest goal teaching is to show students that it's okay to mess up. It's more than okay to mess up. We all do it. We just have to do so with a level of humility and acceptance and all those things, and you'll gain a lot more respect. And if you handle your faux pas an appropriate and learnable way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there has to be accountability. I think I would agree with Sarah on that. It does feel like in the absence of accountability, it's very difficult for people to see any reason why they need to change their behavior. So that's definitely going to be something I'm going to be watching for in the coming weeks, even months, and definitely in the coming years. A, a willingness to say, I was wrong, this was wrong, it needs to be different, we need to do different, I need to do different. One of the things that I think I've been convicted of over and over and over and over again, but maybe more so in the last four years, is whose safety and comfort and peace and trust and friendship even that I've prioritized with my speaking or my silence. I think for myself, I wouldn't speak for anybody else, but I feel like I feel a lot of pressure to go along, to get along, to be nice, right, to not be rude, um, to assume the best of other people. And if I'm being if I'm being honest with myself, because I'm white and because most of my network is white, when I think about what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do, and I think, well, what will people think? Mostly in my mind, those people are other white people, you know, or maybe other straight people or other Christian people. And, I mean, I've got a lot of really good people in those categories in my life, and I do care what they think of me, but I also try to think of folks who are not in those categories and what do they think of me? Do they trust me? Do they believe that I have their back? Do they believe that I'm looking out for their kid in the same way I'm looking out for my kid? And am I showing that in the way that I live? So, I mean, I guess that would definitely echo what Sarah said. It really is self-work. Who do I want to be and is who I want to be, is that believable to people? If you ask someone what does she believe and what does she stand for, would they know? Would uh, what I say I believe, is it clear in the choices that I make, in the um, public statements that I make? and in who I'm lining up with, I think that is just something that has been a gut check for me for a really long time since I first learned the story of Elizabeth Eckford as told to Daisy Bates. And I read about her dad chewing nervously on his cigar and being so terrified to send his little girl. She was one of the Little Rock Nine. Um, There's never been a moment in my 44 years of life where I've been asked to have the kind of courage that many of my fellow Americans of color have been asked to have over their lifetime and over the history of this country. I want to be accountable to them. So I I want there to be very specific accountability for the actions of individuals and organizations who participated in the attack on the Capitol. I want that. I think that's right and appropriate and ethical, and I think it's necessary for us to move forward from this specific event. And then I also want to be accountable to myself and to each other and to other people for being the kind of person that I say that I am and having that manifest 
in the choices and decisions that I make. So it is, it, yeah, I agree with Sarah. It feels stupid and shallow to sort of make it about yourself. But ultimately, I think it is. We're only in charge of us, right? I'm the boss of me, ultimately. So I think that kind of accountability and then trying as much as possible to live your life in such a way that people would want to to live like you, right? I want to be that kind of person. Yeah. The greatness that we all can and are. And so we're coming to the close of, of our time together today. And I want to ask you that last Times Talk question, uh, which is always, what do you hope your audience takes away uh, from this Times Talk conversation on the Capitol riots? If I had to say, I would hope that the audience would take away a new understanding of what it says about who we are uh, and what that means about who we should be going forward. I would say um, along the same lines, I would hope that uh, students or faculty would take away that there's this long history, right? There's this long history of white supremacy. It shows up in various ways, and you can do something different about it by holding yourself accountable and therefore going out into the world and holding other people accountable for doing different. Well, Sarah Buckdown, Stephanie McClure, I want to thank you all for joining me today on this Times Talk edition of Georgia College Connections. Thank you, Mr. McDonald. Thank you, Daniel. You've been listening to a Times Talk edition of Georgia College Connections. Today, we previewed the upcoming Times Talk, which will examine the Capitol riots and what they can tell us about these United States. I was joined today by Georgia College criminal justice professor Sarah Buckdown and Georgia College sociology professor Stephanie McClure. They will co-facilitate the Times Talk conversation, which will take place at noon tomorrow via video conference. You can see a list of articles about this topic and find out how to join in the Times Talk on WRGC's Facebook page. On behalf of WRGC 88.3 FM, I have been your host, Daniel McDonald. I want to thank you for spending this portion of your evening with me here on Georgia College Connections. I hope you enjoyed our time together, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.